Thank you. Okay, so height-wise, this is much better. Okay. Exposure-wise, I do feel quite exposed not having a pulpit to hide behind, but anyway. Okay. So, morning, everyone. So a couple of Tuesdays ago was Pancake Tuesday, okay, which feels like a distant memory now, but it means we're firmly in the run-up to Easter. Okay, and over the next few weeks, at least over the, at this week and next week, um, as a church, we're going to be looking at the theme of the Lamb as it weaves its way throughout Scripture and culminating in Jesus. And this morning, we'll be looking at arguably the most significant Lamb of the Old Testament. That's the Passover Lamb. For Jews, Passover is the most important event in the religious calendar. It actually marks the start of the religious year. And the lamb is what the ceremony revolves around. So the subject today is the very first Passover, the institution of the Passover feast. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 this morning. And we're picking up the biblical narrative at a point in time when God's people, the Israelites, are slaves in Egypt. And for about 400 years, they've been living in Egypt, away from their own land and for a large portion of that time as slaves to Pharaoh, being put to work building his cities. When we reach the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh is so intimidated by the growing number of Israelites that he begins what, what is essentially a campaign of genocide against them, okay, commanding that all newborn Israelite boys be murdered by their midwives, and he imposes hard labor on the workers there. So the Israelites, they cry out to God to deliver them from the suffering that they're enduring. The Israelites, they're supposed to be God's people. They're supposed to be serving Jehovah as their God and their king. But here they are stuck in Egypt, enslaved to a pagan king who fancies himself as a god. Now, God sees the plight of his people, and he begins the outworking of a plan that will free his people from slavery in Egypt so they can be free to serve him in their own land. God raises up a man called Moses to lead his people out of slavery and into freedom. And he instructs Moses, says, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And when Pharaoh refuses, I will bring you out of that country with mighty acts of judgment. So, Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds, no. And thus begin the plagues. Ten disasters that God would inflict on Egypt to force Pharaoh into letting the Israelites go. Firstly, the Nile turns to blood. Let my people go, says Moses. The answer is still no. A plague of frogs is sent, then lice, then flies. And before every plague, Moses repeats the demand, let my people go. Every time, the answer is no. The severity of the plagues ramps up. Next comes death of livestock, boils on the skin, hailstorms, uh, swarms of locusts and darkness across the land. And Pharaoh's answer remains, no, I will not let your people go. So God says to Moses, there'll be one more plague. And after this one, Pharaoh will let you go. In fact, even more than that, he'll drive you out. God says in Exodus 11, verse 4, he says, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There'll be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there ever has been or ever will be again. 
final plague was the angel of death. The angel of death would visit every house in Egypt that night, Egyptian or Israelite, and take the life of any firstborn son. Now imagine the devastation that that would cause. I mean, think about your own household. You know, if that happened in England today, you know, for us, my wife, Ricarda, she would wake up to find our eldest, Joshua, and myself dead in our beds. If you do the maths, then about sort of 20 to 25% of the population are firstborn sons, maybe a little bit more. Okay, this plague that was coming had the capacity to wipe out about 25% of the population of Egypt. I mean, that's terrifying. That's devastating. But what's Pharaoh's response? No, I will not let your people go. Exodus 11 uh, verse 7 says this, But among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God is going to make a way out for his people. The angel of death will visit every house in the region that night, but God is going to provide a way for those who are his people to avoid the coming judgment. And in Exodus 12, we find what that plan is and how it works out for Israel. So we're going to read the first 42, the first 42 verses of Exodus chapter 12, which is a long reading, but you only live once. So Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needs in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival of the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. 
And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you've said and go, and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, but otherwise they said, We will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now the length of time the Israelite, peop the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt, because the Lord kept vigil that night, to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Amen. So, the angel of death is coming to Egypt, and there's nothing anyone can do now to stop it coming. The judgment of God is en route, and everyone in the land, Egyptian or Israelite, will be subject to it. However, God offers a way out from the coming judgment, a way to be spared from the impending wrath. And that way is a substitutionary sacrifice. God presents Moses with a ritual, the sacrificing of an innocent lamb that will satiate the angel of death and hence save the household. The lamb would serve as a substitute for the firstborn. About 700 years after these events, Isaiah would refer to the coming Messiah as a lamb. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And another 600 years after Isaiah wrote that, John the Baptist would see the approaching Jesus and say, behold, the lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, Paul would later identify Jesus explicitly as the substance to which the Passover, and especially the lamb, pointed forwards to. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So the Old Testament clearly looks forward to the coming Messiah as the fulfillment of what this and every subsequent Passover lamb pointed to. And the New Testament looks back and rejoices in the fact that Jesus became that final Passover lamb for us. And because Jesus identified as the lamb so often in the New Testament, and Exodus 12 contains arguably the central lamb of the Old Testament, we're going to make the lamb and how it points forward to Jesus the primary focus today. So firstly then, from verses uh, 1 to 6, we're going to look at what qualified the lamb. Okay, what qualified the lamb? Not every lamb in Israel was qualified to be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. There were some tight restrictions on them. From verse 5, we see it had to be a perfect lamb. Okay, that was picked out to be sacrificed. A lamb without blemish. Only one of the best lambs from the flock could be used. A lamb without any defects of his own. You know, the Passover lamb was going to be used as a substitute for the firstborn in each household. That lamb was going to take the wrath and judgment against sin that was coming to that household. The lamb could only take the punishment for another's imperfections if it itself was perfect. And clearly this is a perfect picture of what would later qualify Jesus to be our Passover lamb. Jesus became the perfect, without blemish, Passover lamb for us. You know, as fallen people, we are in an insurmountable debt before God because of our sin. There's nothing we can do within ourselves to balance those books. For Jesus to be our substitute, he had to be perfect before God, completely without sin, in positive accounts with God, if you want to continue that analogy. If you're going to pay off someone else's debt, you need to be out of debt yourself. You can only help someone else out, financially speaking, if you haven't got your own financial problems to worry about. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And that made him qualified to be our substitute. His sacrifice was able to pay off our debt of sin before God. And the Passover lamb looked forward to that. It also had to be a perfect uh, lamb to be a substitute for the firstborn. From verse 6, we see that the lamb had to be watched for four days. Okay, they were picked out on the 10th day and they'd be sacrificed on the 14th day. So there were four days in between when the lamb had to be looked after and watched. And the people would have to make sure that their perfect lamb remained perfect over that time. Okay, they'd have to watch their lamb for four days and ensure that it still met all of the requirements. Jesus was watched for about 33 years on this earth. For 33 years, Jesus was watched and tested and he passed every test completely without sin. Before his ministry and his life growing up and working as a carpenter with his father, Jesus did not commit a single sin. He was completely innocent. At the start of his ministry, God the Father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, God the Father gave the seal of approval on Christ's innocence at his baptism. 
Even when tempted in the wilderness by Satan, Jesus didn't falter. He honored God throughout and he remained sinless. Despite all the opposition during his ministry, no sin. Despite the injustices committed against him in his trials in the last days of his life, Jesus did not sin. Jesus was, was so innocent of all sin that even his enemies couldn't find evidence against him to condemn him. And he had to bring false witnesses against him at his trials. But such was Jesus' innocence that even that wasn't enough. Jesus finally had to basically willingly incriminate himself before the Jews to give them grounds to put him to death. Jesus was tested and tempted in every possible way, but he passed every test and he remained the sinless, perfect lamb. Now let's look at the death of the lamb. Verse 21 again. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. So the lamb had to be killed. The lamb was perfect. It was without blemish, but it was the death of the lamb that saved the household, not its perfect life. Death and judgment were coming and the lamb was acting as a substitute. It had to take the punishment that would otherwise be taken by the firstborn. More than that though, its blood had to be applied to the doorpost, to the top of the sides of the door of the house for the occupants to be saved. So it wasn't even enough just for the lamb to die. Okay, the death of the lamb alone wouldn't actually save anyone. It was only when the household took that step of faith and applied the blood to the outside of their household that they would be saved. By applying the blood to the outside of their houses, the Israelites were essentially saying to the angel of death, I know you're here to deal out wrath and judgment of God, and I know that death is the just punishment there. But that punishment has already been dealt with in this house. Okay, look at this blood in our doorway. Sin's been dealt with here already. Death has already occurred here. There's no further judgment required here. When the angel of death saw that the price had already been paid at the house, he would pass over it and move on to the next one. Similarly, Jesus' death alone is not enough to save you. Now, bear with me, okay, because if you clip that, that's the most heretical sort of anti-reformation thing that I've ever said, okay? What I mean is this, okay? Just because Jesus died, it does not mean you or I are automatically saved. Just like the death of the lamb did not automatically save the Israelites. When we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our faith in the fact that he died to take the punishment we deserve, it's then that we are saved. Okay, when we put our faith in Jesus, then we are covered by his blood and we are saved. The Israelites were only saved when by faith they applied the blood to their houses. And by faith, we apply the blood of Christ to our lives. And just like the Israelites, if we're covered by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of the final Passover lamb, then we can stand before God and say, yes, God, I know I've sinned against you. And I know the just punishment for my sin is death. But look at this. 
My sin has already been punished. Death has already been dealt out here, and no further judgment is necessary. When God sees the Christian, when he sees someone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus and his saving work, then he sees the blood of Christ covering that person. And he can see that the debt of sin's been paid. Justice for sin has been dealt. Do you ever struggle with assurance of your salvation? Okay, I know I do from time to time. I think about my faith. I think about my life. I think about my doubts. And sometimes I wonder, am I really saved? Sometimes I think that my faith is so weak that it's not strong enough to save me. Or I see sins that I've committed, thoughts I've thought, and I think surely I mustn't be saved. I sometimes doubt aspects of my faith, and then I wonder, how can I really be saved? I'm not going to ask for hands up, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels that way from time to time. But in my study for this, I came across a preacher who told this story. He said, imagine two men on the night of the Passover from different households. They've heard Moses' message that the angel of death is coming, that they need to take a perfect lamb, sacrifice it, apply the blood to their doorways. One man says to the other, how are you doing? And the friend responds, well, to be honest, not great. You know, I'm worried about this final plague that God's sending. This angel of death is coming. He could take the life of my boy. You know, I love my boy. I couldn't bear to lose him. My family would fall to pieces if he were taken from us. The first man says, well, have you followed Moses' instructions? And he responds, well, yeah, I, I, I picked out a perfect lamb four days ago. We've just slaughtered him. We've roasted him. We've eaten him. We've put his blood on our doorposts, like Moses said. I just don't really get how that's going to work out, though. I'm still really worried for my boy. And the first man says, well, you know, Moses is the messenger of God. And if he tells us what to do to be saved, then that's good enough for me. Okay, I know that God will keep me and my family safe. I'm trusting in the death of the lamb to be the substitute for my boy that will avert God's wrath from our house. I have confidence in God and I'll sleep easy tonight. His friend says, wow, I wish my faith was as strong as yours. I'm just not as confident as you. So the question then is this. The next morning, whose firstborn son was saved? The son of the man who rested on God's promises or the son of the man who doubted and who worried? Well, the answer, of course, is both. Okay? The sons of both men survived. The angel of death passed over both houses because salvation had nothing to do with the strength of the Israelites' faith, simply that they had faith. It was not the quality of their faith that saved them, but the quality of the sacrifice that served as their substitute. The second man's faith was weak, okay? But he had faith. He put the door, he, sorry, he put the blood on the door in faith. He doubted, he worried, but the blood was there. And that's what the angel of death was looking for. The Israelites had to put their faith in the death of the lamb to be saved. Do you worry that your faith is not as strong as others around you? Well, your salvation does not depend on the strength of your faith. It depends on the object of your faith. It depends on what you put your faith in. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death that's completely sufficient to cover all of your sins. 
if you're trusting in the death of Christ for your salvation, then you can be assured that God will pass over you on judgment day. Because he'll not be measuring how big your faith was or how little you doubted. He'll be looking to see if you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. So I have to ask, are you covered by the blood of the Lamb this morning? Jesus died for you to take all the wrath and punishment that you deserve. And all you need to do to be saved is to trust in that work. And by trusting in Jesus, you apply his blood to you. You're covered by the blood of the Lamb, and you don't have to fear any condemnation. Next, I'd like to focus on the Passover meal itself. So there are three elements to this meal. The lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. Firstly, the lamb then. It had to be roasted whole and eaten. Now, I've read some interesting things about why the lamb was roasted and not cooked another way and why it had to be whole. So one idea was that cooking it, the whole point is here so that it can be whole. Okay? So the lamb had to be roasted over the fire because this is the only way to cook it whole, essentially. If they boiled it or cooked it some other way, they have to cut it up to fit in their pots. Okay? And perhaps this looks forward to the death of Christ and that none of his bones would be broken before his death. Another idea that I've read is that because the Passover lamb represents Jesus, we can't just choose which parts of Jesus' life we accept or, we, or which parts of his life we respect, okay? We have to accept it as the whole, okay? We're not allowed to have the whole Jesus was a wonderful teacher, but sort of mentality. We can't just cherry pick the things that we like from what Jesus said and cast aside other bits. We have to accept the whole Jesus put forth in the Bible, the sinless Son of God who died for our sins. Read into that what you want. What I do think is interesting, though, is the fact that the lamb had to be eaten. It wasn't just slaughtered and then sort of burnt away to nothing. You know, that, that would, in principle, that would still have met the requirements for salvation. You know, as far as an innocent lamb dies, and has its blood applied to the doorways. Okay, you don't have to eat it for that to work. But God puts this extra requirement in there. You must eat the lamb. I think this is interesting because the Passover meal, at least the first Passover meal, was not some sort of stationary ritual. You know, it was something that was urgent. It was in haste because the people were expecting a journey afterwards. Immediately after the Passover night, there would be a long journey out of slavery in Egypt and into salvation and freedom. So the lamb was not only the method by which the Israelites would be saved from slavery, it would also be their fuel for the journey afterwards. The death of the lamb saved them, but feasting on the lamb would fuel them on their journey into a life of freedom. How many Christians just see Jesus, the lamb of God, as necessary for their salvation, but not really as someone who bears much relevance to their life afterwards? How many people, when they give their testimony, stop at the point when Jesus has saved them and don't really say anything about the journey with Jesus afterwards? Jesus' death saves us, and it begins our journey with God. We need to be continually fueled by Christ to run the race as a Christian. Now, sometimes we imagine the Christian life a bit like a ladder, okay? and we move from rung to rung as we progress. A friend of mine once said, talking about the gospel, he said, the gospel, the fact that Jesus died for your sins, is not just the first rung on the ladder. He says, it's the whole ladder. 
The gospel is the whole of your Christian life all the way through. As we progress through life, we need to be fueled more and more by the gospel. The second element of the feast were the bitter herbs. The Israelites were about to leave 430 years of slavery behind them. And these bitter herbs were to be a reminder, especially during Passovers and generations to come, of how bitter that time in slavery had been. The Israelites were not to look back on their time in Egypt as the good old days, but as a time of oppression and of slavery, and that they were something that they'd be glad to be free of. Do we look at our lives before we were saved in the same way? You know, sometimes we see the lives that non-Christians around us lead, and it makes us think back to what we did before we were Christians. And there's a temptation there to put on your rose-tinted specs and think, well, wasn't that great? I wish I could go back to doing that. But then, if we're thinking that way, we've forgotten how bitter it is to live life enslaved to sin and to be oppressed by other masters. The bitter herbs are a reminder of the bitterness that Israel were leaving behind and the sweetness that a life-serving God is. Unleavened bread was eaten at the meal. Now, unleavened bread means that the bread was made without yeast. Okay, so it doesn't rise, it just stays flat. And there are a couple of reasons why this was important. Yeast in the Bible is used as a picture of sin. Okay, so removing yeast from the household was symbolic of purging out sin from their lives. Okay, God cannot abide sin. And getting rid of the yeast was a metaphor for leaving that sin behind, for purging that sin out. On a more pragmatic level, okay, the Passover meal was a hasty meal. Okay, because there was a journey coming up. There just wasn't the time to wait for bread to rise. Okay, there wasn't the time to let bread rise and knead it and let it rise again and bake it and whatever. There just wasn't that time. They had a huge journey coming up. Okay, they had to eat, pack up, and go. If you look at verse 11, it says, This is how you're to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. The Israelites had to be ready to move. Okay, they ate the meal with their belts on, their shoes on, staff in hand, ready to walk. The death of the lamb, okay, it would save them, but there was a journey to go on with the Lord immediately after. Let's read from verse 29 again. It says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and also bless me. So at midnight, the plague hits, just as God had promised it would. And Egypt is devastated. No household is spared. Didn't matter whether the occupants were rich or poor, pharaoh or slave, good or evil, the angel of death swept through the region and took the lives of the firstborn sons with him. The only thing that separated the survivors from those who were now mourning was the blood of the lambs on their doorways. The lives that each family had lived up to that point counted for nothing. Regardless of how much good they did or how much evil they had committed, the only thing that mattered, 
the only thing that saved was whether or not a lamb's blood covered their doorway. On the night of the Passover, death visited every single house. Egyptian or Israelite, every single house was visited by death. The only difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites was who died. In Egyptian houses, the firstborn sons died. But in Israelite houses, a lamb had died on behalf of the firstborn. Down to verse 37. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, and there were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other, many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Then verse 40. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night, all the Israelites had to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. So the Israelites are free from slavery now. 430 years they had spent in Egypt, but, is, but God held true to his promises to Abraham, and he brought them out. It says 600,000 men left Egypt. So if you account for women and children too, then it's probably something on the order of 2 million people marching out of Egypt and away from their life of slavery. The Passover lambs died to save the people from God's judgment. And now they can walk free from the bondage that they used to be under. No wonder that Jesus used the Passover as the foundation of the Lord's Supper. During every Passover after this event, Jews have remembered how the death of an innocent lamb led to their freedom from slavery. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember how the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, freed us from our slavery to sin. So to conclude then, in this passage in Exodus 12, God was sending judgment against Egypt and only those covered by the blood of the Lamb would be saved. When we die, God will judge us for our sin and the just punishment for sin is death. Only those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb will be saved from that. But salvation is it's so much more than just avoiding God's punishment. It means freedom. Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom to enjoy and serve God. It means joy everlasting in your relationship with God. You know, Israel were not, just, were not saved just to be abandoned by God and left to their own devices. They were saved to be brought into the promised land. The land of milk and honey where Jehovah would be their God and Israel would be his people. And the future of the Christian is like orders of magnitude more beautiful even than that. Are you covered by the blood of the Lamb this morning? Have you put your faith in Jesus' work for your salvation? The Passover is remembered every year by the Jewish people. So about 3,300 times this meal has been eaten by Jews to remember God's saving work in Egypt. And as, as, as amazing as the deliverance of the Jews was from Egypt, you know, it almost pales into insignificance compared to the deliverance from sin and death that Christ won for us on the cross. So rejoice, church, that the spotless Lamb of God 
Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, died in our place and has brought us all together into the family of God and into freedom. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we want to thank you so much for the death of Christ. Thank you so much for the gospel, that Christ became our Passover lamb, that he died the death that we all deserve and that we can now, we can now be, be free and in relationship with you and in relationship with each other. Thank you so much for this truth, Lord. I pray that you help us to live in that truth and to gain confidence and gain assurance from that truth every day of our lives. Amen.